Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I came back Friday night from 10 days away. I would say they were the richest 10 days I can remember in a very long time. And uh, I've returned a holy mess. I'm emotional like I'm having surges of heavenly estrogen shooting through my body. I'm crying. And uh, praise time wrecked me this morning. <laughs> um, I, I came back from this trip really freshly in love with God, in love with our church, in love with my family. And uh, I hope I make it through this message. I couldn't sleep last night. At all. I think I was awake almost the whole night. So my body is shot, but my heart is overflowing. And so I'm going to just ask the Lord to carry me as I go through this message. Um, I'm afraid that one of the casualties of war when I'm away for 10 days is I can't make slides. I just couldn't pull out a sermon and slides. So this morning, you get to look just at this. Um, I hope that's okay. And since we're not going to have this, the text flashed up on the screen, here's what I'm going to ask, is that you would, if you have your Bible physically with you or if you have it on your phone, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. I'll give you a minute to get there. And the title of the message is simple. It's one or the other. One or the other. I hope that resonates with you because life is full of binary choices. One or the other. Matthew six nineteen to 24. Here's what Jesus said. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's the word of God. For centuries... Human beings at night when the sun went down would look at the sky, see the stars, and would have a profound sense that we're not alone, that we didn't just make ourselves. And they would look at the stars and some of the smarter ones would notice the patterns of movement and they stared and stared trying to make sense of what they were seeing. How is this universe put together? Where do we fit as human beings as the planet Earth in the bigger picture of what we see. About 300 years before Jesus came on the scene, 
the philosopher Aristotle well established a model of our universe that put Earth at the center. And it made sense because they would stand at the night sky and they would see the sky twirling around us. And then at a certain time of the year, the same pattern would come back. And they reasoned that, in fact, the earth is the center of everything. And that view held sway for about 1,800 years. But the smarter astronomers would look very closely and say, yeah, that explains most things. But there are still a few anomalies, a few things that don't make sense if the earth is at the center. And no matter how much tortured and creative math they did, they could not make the whole story fit together while the earth remained at the center. But because it explained like 90% of what we could see, it was good enough. And most people said, forget it. Either I'm not smart enough or it's not worth chasing. Let's move on to other things. And for 1,800 years, humanity believed that our planet was at the center of the entire universe. And then a Polish astronomer named Nicolaus Copernicus came on the scene and said, hey, what if we do something crazy and just for a minute imagine that there's a different center? That it's not the earth, but what if the sun is in fact the center? How does that, and all of a sudden, the smartest guys on the planet went, oh my gosh. And just like that, with one simple change of the center, Every loose end in astronomy and mathematics snapped together, and the picture became clear, and it all finally started to make sense. We were never at the center, but the sun was. And just changing the center made sense of it all. You don't have to be a genius to figure out why I'm sharing that story. Do you ever feel like that? I think those astronomers who could explain 90% of it, but that last 10% was still nagging at them. It just doesn't make sense. You know what that feels like? Do you ever put together a bicycle or some complicated piece of Ikea furniture? And there, I did it. And when it's all done, you look at the bottom of the box, and there's like six or seven straight pieces. I feel like those are supposed to do something. I missed something in the 180 instructions, but... I have no idea where those go. And there's an anxiety there, isn't there? Like, this is supposed to matter, but I don't know how. And I can't make sense of the whole thing. And it's just nagging and nagging at me. I think that's the way these astronomers felt. Do you ever feel like that about your life? Did you ever feel like this stuff I was raised on in the church, these things I believe and accept as true, It makes sense for most of my life. On the good days, I can just get through. God's in his heaven. We're down here on earth. He loves us, yada, yada, yada. And it all seems to make sense. But every now and then something happens. You wait. I don't understand how to process this. I hear that God is love, but I don't feel loved. I hear that God is good. I don't see his goodness. I hear that he cares for us, but I feel abandoned. And what works for us most of our lives suddenly doesn't work. And what's normally just in the background is a nagging little inconsistency takes front and center and we can't get over it. How do I make sense of everything I believe in this moment when nothing makes sense? 
And I believe in the midst of that kind of existential confusion, Jesus invites us to do what Copernicus did and change the center. Because I'm convinced that so many of us live in that pre-Copernican view of everything. That we've accepted what we've heard about Scripture and about God But for many years since we believed those things, we've continued to live with ourselves at the center. It's how we process and interpret the things that happen around us. Most people, if you ask them, how are you doing? We can't see past how my life is going, what my situation is like. When I ask the question, is God good? How do you process your answer? See, I think for most of us, God is good when life is good. So what is God when life is not good? And when we're at the center, trying to know God becomes exceedingly confusing, and it feels filled with inconsistencies. But when we change the center, everything begins to make a clearer picture. What's at the center of everything for you. One thing I know is it's really easy to talk about what's at the center. I can talk about it. As a pastor, you're more prone to believe me than other people, I guess, because I'm a professional Christian. But, you know, the truth is, if I'm very honest, I have to wrestle each day afresh with what or who really is at the center for me. The prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 17, 9, said something that should shake us. And if you doubt it, just open your eyes and look at people around you. If you doubt it, take a look at your own heart just for a minute. Here's what he said. The human heart is deceitful above all things. Another translation says, the human heart lies more than anything else in the universe. (laughs) Is that true? Does your heart lie to you about you? does. And so he says, a heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts are such liars that even as words come out of our mouths, we're not always sure that they're the truth, are we? And because our hearts are dishonest, Though we can speak easily and quickly about what occupies the true center of our lives, Jesus says it's not as easy as speaking the words. So let me give you three ways. And this is what Jesus then commences to do. He gives us three ways in which we can discern what really is at the center for me. Is it just my claim or is there a way for me to look at my life and start to see what really is at the center of everything for me? So here's three things. Here are, I shouldn't say here's, here are three things that help us discern what really is at the true center of everything for me. First question is, what do you treasure? What do you treasure? Let me ask you a hypothetical question, but I don't want you to make it too hypothetical. I want you to actually do a mental exercise and picture this with me, okay? If your house was burning down, And everything with a brain and legs already ran out, okay? I mean, like, the people you love, the pets, all safe. So forget those things, okay? If you had to run into your burning house and you had time and space in your hands to rescue only one object, only one, what would you pick? 
Don't say, my suitcase filled with a hundred other things. Come on, just, just go with me for a second. And I want you to picture that thing, which in a burning house, above all other earthly possessions, if you had to reset, control, alt, delete everything and start over, at least I have this. What's that one thing? Picture it in your mind right now. Do, do this with me, okay? Just picture it and then just grab hold of it in your hand. Just make a fist. Some of you are not. Come on. Now, picture this, okay? This thing in your hand, which you risked life in them to run into, and this is the one thing, the possession among all your possessions, which you prize the most. Be really fun to just shout out for the next half hour. What's in your hand? I'll tell you that. That will make for an incredible small group conversation one night. Just to ask your group, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? And think about this. You might be pretty comfortable with the choice you made, but you get a lot of clarity about whether you chose well as you stood on your lawn and watched your house burn. And everything you didn't choose was going up in flames right in front of you. You get a lot of clarity in that moment. Now, here's the thing. If you're a human, you're going to grieve the loss of all those other things. They represent your life's work, the things you've accumulated Hours spent researching, shopping, saving. Some of those things are worth more than money. They have sentimental value. So there is grief over the loss of all of those other things. But every time you grieve the loss of everything else, you turn back to the thing in your hand and you say, but at least I rescued this. That's a start. It's the seed from which I will rebuild my heart and my life. I will regain some hope. At least I have this, and this is irreplaceable. If I lost this, I don't think I could move forward. Do you understand how that works? This thing in your hand helps you process the sense of loss over all the other things which you don't have. And what Jesus says is you will find where your heart really is by looking at what really is in your hand at the end of your life. And the, the reason I'm, I really feel so burdened about that this morning is I don't believe God says these things to make us feel guilty or bad about ourselves. But I believe that God says this to us to rescue us from the unbearable regret of coming to the end and realizing the wrong thing is in our hand. I've shared with you so many times about my years spent in the geriatric ward as a volunteer. I've sat at the deathbed of numerous people and just asked them questions about where their hearts are. And there is nothing as painful as hearing someone say, I did it all wrong. Everything that mattered, I got wrong. And I see it now at the end, but it doesn't matter. Picture breathlessly running out of your house holding what you thought was a photo album and discovering it was the phone book. And as you watch the flames consume everything you care about, I got it wrong. And that thought has been just messing me up all week because I care about so many people. 
And I think about us coming to the end of it all and just having such clarity when there's no point in finally seeing it. It's just done. We got it all wrong. I believe that God loves us. And so he says these things to wake us up so that he can spare us the pain of that regret. What do you treasure? Because that's where your heart is. And in fact, that's how you locate the true center of your life. Is this thing which you prioritize above other things, which you so consistently choose so that when everything else will finally go up in smoke, it is what is still left being held in your hand. At least I have this. Thank God. And when you look at what's left, we have gotten it right. There's another aspect of treasure. Jesus says, don't store up treasure on earth, but store up treasure in heaven. The words store up and treasure are the same word. And they're the same word from which we get the English word thesaurus. What's a thesaurus? If you don't like words, thesauruses are just a waste of time, aren't they? According to thesaurus.com, there are 49 ways in English to say happy. It's a little ridiculous. 49 ways in English to say happy. If you love words like I do, that's awesome. Because <laughs> when you're writing cards to 50 people, you're like, you make me exuberant. You make me... You know. So there's so many ways to say the same thing. If you love words, a thesaurus is your best friend because it's a treasury an abundance, an extravagant, unnecessary, but happy excess of something. If you don't like words, a thesaurus is just the dumbest thing in the world. That's just such a waste. One word is enough. Happy. There. Said it. Why do you need 48 more ways to say the same basic idea? And do you see the difference? Because my wife and I would fall in different camps with respect to a thesaurus. She would say, that's so unnecessary. I think that's her favorite word because she's so minimalist and lean and efficient. I love that about her, but I feel like she's an alien sometimes to me. Because for her, when something is sufficient, it's enough. But for everyone, even people wired like her, there is some area of our lives where we suspend that rule and where enough is not in the vocabulary. Maybe it's shoes. Maybe it's money, maybe it's friends, maybe it's life-changing experiences or adventure or adrenaline rushes or talents or awards. I don't know what it is, but for every one of us, there are some things about which we say, that's totally ridiculous. Why does anybody need three cars when they're just one driver? Why does Imelda Marcos need 1,000 pairs of shoes? She's only got two feet. We don't even need to go all the way to Melda Marcos in the 80s, right? Sometimes men look at their significant other and go, I just don't understand the shoe thing. Well, that's because men's clothing is different. But for each of us, there's an area of our lives where we're very quick to say, there's no such thing as enough. When the rest of the world is saying, hey, take it easy, calm down, that's good enough, our hearts are screaming, just one more. Just one more. What is that for you? That thing that obsesses you. Just one more. Just one more. 
It's never going to be enough. Every time you eat, you get hungrier. That's what we treasure. It's the irony is that the more you hoard, the hungrier you feel. And what is it in your life that awakens that kind of deep and relentless appetite? Jesus says that our whole lives will be spent investing in and accumulating something somewhere. And the whole of our lives will be spent storing up something. And he says the differentiating thing between people will be whether what we stored up is accruing in heaven or down here. And don't blow that off as a familiar churchy statement. That is ha- that's going to have a devastating impact on every man, woman, and child someday. That is not a small statement. It should smack you in the face. It smacks me in the face. Because what it says is every day that I'm breathing, every day that I work hard, I sweat, I sacrifice, I'm accruing something. And the real question, the grade report for my life is, where was all that accruing? The writer of Ecclesiastes says this, we all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. That's Ecclesiastes 5.15. We all come, listen to that. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. Ecclesiastes 5.15. And so what he's saying to us is if you have spent your whole life accruing riches in an account here, there will come a moment at the end of all things when that account will be closed, and when you try to transfer it to the next place, the systems won't match, and it'll all be done. And so he says, please don't get to the end and experience that heartache. Begin even now. And here's the thing. When the writer of Ecclesiastes says this to us, that you can't take your riches with you, that was in the days before Jesus. So, what most human beings hearing those words did was say, then that's fine. I will enjoy the living daylights out of what I have now. If I can't take it with me, there'll be nothing left but a husk. I'm going to suck the juice out of this stuff. What's the point of saving money? I'm going to buy everything my heart desires. And he goes on later to write, I did that. I denied myself nothing. There was no pleasure that struck my heart that I didn't give myself for a while He experimented. He conducted the greatest human experiment. He pursued every pleasure a human heart could conceive of. Multiple women, multiple palaces, building projects, vast wealth, military conquest, fame. And what he says at the end is, even though I did that, in the end, here's my conclusion, it was all meaningless. I just felt empty. You can try that experiment for yourself and find that at the end, the account really will be drawn out and closed. But here's the glorious news that Jesus offers. Because of what he's done and the eternal hope he's given, you can start to accrue in the forever account right now. 
I'm going to make a confession, and maybe you'll respect me far less for it. And in fact, I'm sure you will respect me far less for it. I'm going to make a confession. Okay? Some of you won't be able to hear the rest of the sermon because you'll have lost respect for me. I have done next to nothing to prepare financially for retirement. Uh, I woke up to that reality a couple months ago. (laughs) I realized without verbalizing it that God's love and my children are my retirement plan. (laughs) So I had four of them. One of you has to do well, kids, because mom and dad, we're counting on you. (laughs) We got nothing. But I'm beginning now to get serious. And Jeannie and I have had some serious talks. We're employing a financial planner, and we are getting our ducks in a row. A little bit late to the game, so um, we may need to rent your garden shed someday. But that's enough for us. You just need a little room, place to sleep. But what I realized is so galling about retirement is that I'm spending money for way later. But you know what's so comforting about a retirement plan? When I get to way later, my account has grown. It takes faith to believe that this present sacrifice is worth our future blessing. And I don't believe that we can make the choice to live for heavenly treasure rather than earthly treasure unless we really understand the beauty and worth of Jesus. You can't do it because you want to be religious or because you want to have a good eternity. The only way we're going to consistently make that choice is if Jesus becomes exceedingly beautiful to us and we're so broken and moved by what he's done that I'll trust him and I'll make that choice now. What are you investing your life to accumulate? And in which account are you growing wealthy by the day? Let me give you a second quick thing. How do you know where your center is, what you really have built your life around? So the second question Jesus asks is, what do you see? What do you see? He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. In other words, this is what would happen if you had no eye. You just keep running into things, stumbling about in the dark. You wouldn't see anything. And so he says, it's the eye that's like a window, a lamp that lets the light in so you can see. And if your window or your lamp is not working, how great is the darkness that will define your life? When I'm flying on an airplane, which I do more often than I ever thought I would as a pastor, I often work on my laptop, and I'm often answering emails, many of which are from you and of a very private and sensitive nature. We have no um, HIPAA rules governing pastoral privacy, but I always seem to sit next to people who have nothing to occupy their own minds. So, like this. So I purchased a security filter. Did you ever see one of these things? It looks like aviator sunglass you know lens right it's just it's this weird metallic looking stuff and you put it over your screen and it works something like a louver or a um, vertical blinds on your window so that if you have them open and you look straight on you can see but if you move a little to the side it's just darkness 
And that's the amazing thing to me. And I'm always a little hinky while I'm using it because I'm like, can you still see? But when I just scoot over, just one foot to the right, one foot to the left, all I see is black on my screen. It's like the computer is off. I think that's unbelievable. And what Jesus is describing is something like that. He says, you could be right in front of something very real. But if you don't know how to see, you've missed everything. You've missed everything. I could have on my computer screen the exact date and nature by, with, by which the person next to me is going to die. Oh, I know everything. And they could be right there and not see it because they don't have the right view. If they just change seats from their center to my center, they will see. Think about this. Blind people don't live in a world of darkness. They live in a world bursting with light and color. Because their eyes are broken, they see none of it. We like to say blind people live in a world of darkness But not really. They live in this amazing world of color and dazzling sights and hours of endless YouTube videos, and they can't see any of it because their eyes don't work. That's such a tragic loss because this world is filled with unimaginable beauty and interest. Even if it's filthy and fallen and broken, it is still also so full of wonder. And if your eyes don't work, you miss all of it. And you spend your entire days on earth so close to the real world, but being so limited in your ability to interact with it. And that's what he's talking about. That if the thing that's supposed to allow you to see doesn't work, how great is the darkness? Because you still have to participate in that reality, but you see none of it. You hear the sounds, you hear everyone going, <laughs> That's hilarious, Did you see that? So, oh, Sorry. No offense. You ever say that in front of a blind person? I have. It was so embarrassing. I was like, did you see that? You feel terrible because you realize that for the blind person, they miss so much, but they don't get to miss it in a bubble. If I were blind, I'd almost want to be deaf too, so I don't have to hear everyone talk about everything they see. Look at the color of the blue in the sky today. That baby is so cute. Honey, you have beautiful eyes. I believe that many people experience life in Christ in very much the same way. Though we have been introduced to the living God, our eyes still only see what everyone else sees. Because we remained in the wrong center, we look right at it and see nothing but darkness. But if we will move to a different center and say, Jesus, I'm going to stop looking at everything through what meets the eye, and I'm going to ask you what you see. What am I supposed to see here? Because there is a reality so far greater than what the eye sees. Do you understand that? And if where you stop is what your eyes show you, You have no idea what you're missing and how unnecessarily your heart gets discouraged and broken. I mean, when you look at the White House today, what do you see? 
a crazy, egomaniacal, orange-haired man who is ruining the world? That's what a lot of people see. That's what I see most days when I open the headlines. But do you also see a man who is broken and so far from God he cannot see it? And for whom his earthly success has been the greatest impediment to standing before God in brokenness and being saved. I don't think we need Hitler anymore. We have Donald Trump. I'm not kidding when I say that. You ask some people in America today, would you rather do a road trip with Hitler or Trump? And they will pick Hitler. Some of you are like, are we allowed to raise our hand? Can, Can I volunteer for that? And when you see someone like that, what do you see? When you see a friend who betrays you, a child who is rebellious against you, ungrateful for everything you've done, when you see a spouse who suddenly turns off their heart towards you, unprovoked, just stops loving you, and you plead for their attention and affection, they won't give it. What do you see? What do you see? Do you see only what everyone else will see? What a jerk. What an ice queen. What a horrible human being. Or do you see something else? When you look at this church today, what do you see? I'm not afraid to hear the answer. You don't have to shout it out, but what do you see? Do you see a plane landing or do you see a plane taking off? With my eyes... I think what I sometimes see is a group of middle-aged people who are kind of tired. We found a comfy chair, and we're just going to settle in, and let's ride this out together. That's what my eyes will see sometimes. That's what I see when I look in the mirror sometimes. This past week, I saw something else because I think God drew me to a very different place. And I came back... uh, how would I say it? I, f- I feel like I have electricity running through me. <laughs> That's the best way to explain it. I have not been this optimistic about our church in a long time. And uh, I had breakfast with someone yesterday and shared my heart. And coming out of that breakfast, uh, I felt like the paddles were put to my chest again. When you look at your marriage, when you look at your family, when you look at your career, when you look at our nation, what do you see? Do you remember that, that story in 2 Kings chapter 6 when the Aramean army was arrayed in its vastness against Israel? And the king said, oh, snap, we need a prophet to tell us it's going to be okay. And they called Elisha, and Elisha said, yeah, we're going to be just fine, don't worry. But Elisha's servant, we're dead. Oh, we're going to die because he looked and this army is huge. It's like 80 times the size of theirs. How do we win this? Reminds me of the time that my son Elijah was put as center for one game on the tip-off against the kid who was 6'5". I took a picture of it. It's hilarious. There's just no worldly expectation that he's going to win that that toss, right? I mean, (laughs) he jumped as high as he could. The kid didn't even jump. He went like that. And it was that kind of, there's no way this, this works out in our favor. And then Elisha said, said something profound. He said, Lord, open this fool's eyes. 
He's looking right at the same thing I'm looking at, and all he sees are what these little gelatinous balls are showing him. He cannot see that there's more. He has no idea that there's more. And he's so discouraged and he's so afraid because he stopped with what his eyes show him. Isn't that where many of us get to so often? We're defeated, we're worried, we're afraid. We're depressed because we saw what anyone standing next to us can see. They're like, sucks to be you. How's that going to work out? And Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes. And just like that, God opens his eyes and moves this fool to another place. He goes, oh. And he looks at the hills beyond the Aramean army. And it is filled with horses and chariots of fire. And God says to him, there are more on your side than there are against you. If only you had eyes to see past what your eyes are seeing. So much of that has to do with the center from which we look at our world. And if you start with this world and your life at the center, it will never really make sense. And you will miss so much that could lift your spirits and give you courage that could tell you there is going to be a tomorrow, but not if you stay where you are and try to figure it out from there. In order to see what is so clearly visible in the heavenly realm, you've got to change where you stand. That's more than just a little change of perspective. That's a very significant shift in the center of everything for you and me. Let me give you a last question. And then we'll land this plane. Jesus says that you can locate the true center of your life by what you treasure, right? What you choose with priority, what you hold in your hand at the end of it, what you hoard without guilt. Just one more. That's one way you find it. And the other way is you know your center by what you're able to see consistently. And if Jesus is the center, you will see his kingdom very often. In every situation, you will see the more that exists. The more will all, not always be a happy ending or good news, but there will be God in it every time. You will see that more consistently if Jesus and his kingdom are at the center of everything for us. Here's the last question. What do you trust? What do you trust? In verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. So he's talking about slavery here. And it would be easy to say the last question is, what do you serve? But I don't think that's the right question. Because we don't serve out of compulsion. We serve what we trust in the end. We serve voluntarily. Jesus said, that we will not serve this master, either God or money, with a chain around our necks. But we will serve that master gladly because we've placed our trust in that master. What's interesting is the word Jesus uses for money, there are a number of, of words in Greek and Aramaic available for money, just like we have in our culture. Greenbacks, cashola, moolah, dough, greenbacks. There's a lot of ways to save money, right? Cheddar. How do, how do people say money these days? I, I don't know any of the slang, right? But 
In Narcos, they call it plata. Plata. The word Jesus uses is mammon. Remember the good old-fashioned Bible belt? Baptist word? Do you serve God or mammon? So what is mammon? It's based in an ancient word that means that in which you have placed your trust. That's what mammon is. It symbolizes anything other than God which you believe will make you okay. For some, it's their physical beauty. For some, it's their athletic prowess. For some, it's their education and intelligence. For some, it's their money. For others, it's their personality. There are a lot of things available to us in this world that we can rely on and lean our weight on to make us feel confident and secure. And we all have a need for that. We're all terrified of the unknown future. We're all so afraid that we're not going to be enough, we're not going to have enough, that things are going to happen that are going to unravel us. And when we look ahead to the future, most of us, all we see is a dim fog of what could be. And that scares us. Even the most confident person, if we're honest, that scares us. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I cannot tell you whether I or my wife will outlive the other. I cannot tell you whether I will even outlive my own children. I cannot tell you if the America I'm living in today will be anything like the America I'll be living in 10 years from now. I can't predict anything with confidence about the future. And because of that and my finiteness, there is a pervasive fear and a need to be certain of something, to place my weight on something that feels trustworthy. And whatever it is I believe makes me okay, gives me a competitive edge, will ingratiate me with others. My reputation, my cleverness, whatever, I will bank on that and I will serve it gladly. If I believe that my physical, by the way, I don't, obviously, but if I thought my physical beauty was my greatest asset, I would risk anything. I would spend thousands forever cutting this, grafting that, pasting this, injecting that to make sure nothing ever affects this beauty because it's what I've got. And God one day will go, take a, get a better lamp. Just take a close look. You've got to go quietly into the sunset. And if that's what I banked on, one day that thing will fail me. I used to really put a lot of confidence in my quick-wittedness. You couldn't have an argument with me without a quick comeback. And some people get a quick comeback on the car ride home. Dang it, I should have, oh! They would have been so depressed if I said that. I used to be able to come up with those things right there on the spot. Hit yourself, man, because I, I just beat you. You brought a knife to a gunfight, man. You know what's happened to me lately? Someone says something on me. Yeah. I just, nothing. I, I, I look at people that I see all the time and go, crud, what's their name? I'm not kidding. It's already starting to happen. This thing which I relied on, I coasted through all of school. I never worked hard at school ever until I got to seminary. I coasted on quickness and now it's gone. And I'm just normal like you guys. What is it you trust? 
What is it that makes you believe that when all is said and done, you're going to be okay because of it? Because that's what you will serve with great dedication. It's what you will pursue at any cost. It's what will justify every sacrifice. It's what you will prioritize. And it won't be with a chain around your neck. That's the greatest irony of this enslavement is it's chosen voluntarily. You've walked into the cage yourself. You've locked the door on your own and you've got the key in your pocket and you stay there. Think about that. You especially see the truth of what you trust when you're forced to choose one at the expense of the other. I faced that when I was making a ton of money and the church called me to quit that job and become a full-time pastor. Not everyone has to make a choice, that, but in that moment, I saw the truth about my heart. And thank God he won that battle, but it wasn't like such a quick thing. It was one of the hardest decisions I've ever faced. I lost a lot of money in one day. And I wasn't sure how I was going to take care of this growing family. And you got like babies just keep coming out. And we're like, how are we going to feed all these little things? I'm going to send them to college. And somehow it all worked out. But you'll know the truth of your center when by choosing one thing, you're unchoosing the other. Let me close this way. I can say that Jesus said it, but we won't be able to choose to trust him more than anything else unless we truly see him. I can't just persuade you logically that this is the right choice for a Christian to make. That's not compelling and it won't make a difference when the rubber meets the road in your life. The only way that Jesus and his great kingdom will become the center, the true center of our lives is if we see what he's done and our hearts are shattered with gratitude. If we look at him and realize he is the most beautiful and most worthy being we have ever known, that what he did for me, I truly understand and I'm broken by it. And here's another truth related to that. I will not see it unless I yearn to see it, unless I'm looking. See, these past 10 days were something like an experiment for me, not one I chose, but it was interesting what happened. Normally, I have a pretty balanced diet of hay, wood, and stubble mixed with precious stones and metals. There's a pretty good mix of garbage fluff and substantive worth in my life. But for the last 10 days, I didn't touch a video game. I didn't watch a YouTube video. I didn't watch a movie or any television. I listened to nothing but worship music. I had no conversation that was not overtly spiritual. I spent hours sitting by the quiet waters of the Puget Sound or the west coast of Vancouver just listening and begging God to say something to me. And it wasn't because I'm so spiritual. It was because I engaged in some activities where that was what was required. I didn't have space in my life or anything else. So I gave myself wholly to it. And about three, four days in, I was fascinated by what was happening to me. It's not the normal rhythm of every day for me. Maybe you thought it was. 
Look, this dude just prays, and he only stops praying to eat and drive. Wish that were true, but it's not. But for the last 10 days, man, I communed with God. I pursued him more intentionally than I have in a very long time. I mean, I sat for hours just saying, God, I'm going to sit right here. I have so many words flowing through my head. I just want them to be yours. Say something to me. I really am listening. At least I think I am. Please say something. Whatever you say, I will do. And around day four, the Irish speak of thin places. Do you, have you heard this phrase? Thin places where heaven and earth are so close together that the separate layer between us is very thin. A place so naturally beautiful, so filled with God's presence, you feel like you just break through one little layer and you're in heaven. I was in a couple places just like that. Places where every square foot of soil was prayed over for 30 years. Where God has met and changed life after life after life. In those places, I sat with God. And around day four, the floodgates opened and he poured his heart out for me. And he messed me up in the most holy way. And I came back just this mess, a, a good mess. And he said things to me that I don't think I was ready to hear before those four days. And he said some things to me that I think are going to change all of our lives for the better. My hope is renewed. And my love for the people important to me is renewed. And above all things, my feeling of closeness with Jesus is very, very high right now. And it's because I believe that for 10 days, I had nothing else on my mind but a desperate need to feel that closeness with him. And he was so faithful, so faithful. And so as I stand here giving a message about treasuring Jesus, seeing his kingdom, trusting him more than I trust anything else, I feel that he has given me the gift of being able to confess, yes, that's true today. And I want to encourage you to join me in that single-minded pursuit of Jesus. This week when I got back, I bought this. I haven't used a paper Bible in a very long time. But there's something about this that enforces slowness. Unlike my iPad, this book will not send me an alert of a new Huffington Post headline that North Korea did this or President Trump did that. It won't tell me you've sent me a text message or I got an email. What it will tell me is what God says to us. And there's a slowness in these pages that I've grown to appreciate. This Bible, if you've never heard of it, is called the Jesus-Centered Bible. <laughs> How could any Christian not own this thing? <laughs> and throughout its pages are little articles reframing everything with Jesus at the center. And I bought this Bible with this desperate desire to stay in this place where God's brought me, where Jesus is the center. And I don't think I can come off the mountain and stay there. I fight every day for that to be true. And this Bible is helping me a great deal. And I want to invite you, join with me in this. We can all have that experience together as a church. And if you're willing, and if you can take the risk, 
set aside a couple days. Tell the people you love, tell your employer, I'm not coming in. I need a couple days to really sit with my God and just listen. You'd be amazed how God will meet you in that place. And if he doesn't meet you in the first two days, accrue your vacation days and come back. I promise you this, he will meet you. And when he does, you will see him and it will be so much easier to move to the right center and live your life around him. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.